If you're looking to sell your private company stock, SharesPost has a solution for you. With more than $4 billion in company-approved transactions, SharesPost is the leading marketplace for private company shares. To learn more, visit us at sharespost.com slash equity. Hello and welcome back to Equity. I am TechCrunch's Kate Clark. Uh, this week, I'm in the studio with Alex Wilhelm of Crunchbase News. Hello, Alex. How are you doing today? I am good, but as we were just saying before we hit record, this is in some ways a bittersweet moment for us in this room because it is the last time that the three of us, you, myself, and our excellent producer, Christopher Gates, will be together in the TC podcast studio at 410 Townsend. It is indeed a bittersweet moment for all of us. Yeah. Uh, You guys are moving to a new cool office, actually closer to mine, which is a lot of fun, but I will be remote next week, so... This is kind of goodbye to probably over 100 episodes recorded in this room alone, I think. Yeah. And then we'll be moving on to a new podcast studio, and who knows what that's going to be like. Uh, I wonder if it will be fancier. I hope it's fancier. Yeah. If it's not fancier, I'm going to feel a little ripped off. (laughs) Okay, well, write that down, everyone, and then we'll report (laughs) back in about two weeks uh, with the results of it. But um, if I can kick off, Kate, I wanted to go over a couple of notes, because today is uh, May 15th. And it is the very middle of the quarter, and it is a good moment to take a kind of a check-in. So here are some things that are out and about that if you want to get a, you have the pulse or a feel for what's going on in the startup and venture capital world, you can take a look at. One is that the Bessemer Cloud Index, everyone's favorite basket of publicly traded SaaS and cloud companies, is still trading near record highs despite the markets taking a bit of a tumble in the last couple of days. Um, most IPOs from this year are doing pretty well. The Uber and Lyft problems have overshadowed the kind of cohort of IPOs this year, but most of them are doing kind of okay. Um, SoftBank is still putting money into companies. Uh, Grofer raised uh, $200 million. It was announced today from SoftBank, for example. Uh, there are a lot of $250 million rounds or larger still happening. IPOs are coming out. We have Luckin and Fastly this week. On the other side, though, there's a lot of trade uncertainty, which is dinging companies, and there is a regulatory climate here in the United States that is deteriorating for large tech companies. That's kind of what's on my radar. Okay, anything you want to throw into that mix as the uh, quarter hits midpoint? I think you summed it up pretty well. I think um, the narrative around Uber is going to really dominate the the tech news cycle probably for weeks and months to come. So we're probably we're not paying as quite as much attention to the companies that are doing well and to the big rounds that SoftBank is is still uh, shoving into companies. Yeah, I think they've almost become so regular it's become banal. Like we right, just don't yeah. care as much as like, oh another hundred million dollars maybe I'll have breakfast now. Totally, it's crazy because I remember what was it maybe a, more than a year ago when just every SoftBank deal was huge huge deal like. Literally, you know, it was these large deals, but people were paying so much attention to them. And now it's kind of like, oh, SoftBank invested hundreds and hundreds of millions. Well, I don't really care about that. Can I tell you why I think that is? I think we used to try to figure out the deals. Like, WAG raises $300 million from SoftBank's vision fund. What is it going to do? And we would sit around and go, wow, I don't know. And now we go, there's no way to find out. It's totally random. And we just move on. That's so true. We were trying to dissect them. And we were yes. trying to be like, oh, actually, yeah, I see what, what SoftBank sees in WAG. But now we look back and we're like, um, yeah, that's probably not a very good idea. Well, maybe it is. But like, there's no way sitting here we're going to be able to tell why. Or also, we're not going to be able to grade it. So... Fair anyway, enough. Let's dial a little bit closer to home and go back to your home state, actually, and talk about the biggest venture capital group up there in the Seattle area, Madrona. Yeah, so there are a few, I think, names that carry a lot of weight 
in Seattle, but then also outside of Seattle. I think Madrona Venture Group is one of those firms that is known, you know, down here in Silicon Valley. It's known, of course, in Seattle. So they they have a startup studio model in addition to a traditional venture capital fund. And I think we may have talked about studios before in the podcast, but I'm not sure. So I'll just quickly summarize what those are. So basically, that's when a firm within its uh, you know safe, cozy walls actually thinks of ideas for startups and then begins kind of testing the idea, looking for product market fit, and actually building that startup within the the venture firm. You know, they'll give it a little bit of money. They'll actually go out and find an entrepreneur that they think fits that project. And sometimes they allow entrepreneurs to come to them with an idea and then they kind of partner. So Madrona has this, of course, they just raised $11 million to sort of um, build out this operation. That $11 million is actually not to invest in the companies, which I was surprised by, but it's actually just operational capital in order to kind of scale out this. And they want to, I think, spin out another like dozen in the next year or so. They've already spun out seven so far. And some of those are actually well-known. Like, I don't know if you've heard of Mighty AI, but that's a pretty big company up in Seattle. And, and I think they've raised um, they've raised uh, dozens of millions. I think their valuation is somewhere around like 80 million. So it's done well. So my, my thought about this is, is this kind of like doing angel investing with a weird twist? Because Majona doesn't do seed or angel investments. That, I don't think they're more of a series A and B mm-hmm. firm. Okay. But they want to have an early look at things and get a cheap price on those companies. So why not just put $11 million over here in your little idea factory, see what bubbles up, and then you can fund it? Yeah, I think it's kind of like that. But what I really th- – I think the real purpose of this, and I think the reason why we see it in places like Seattle, is the um, – the culture is different in a way where people don't uh, take that risk of starting a company as often. And because of that, you don't see as much entrepreneurship. And which is something I w- we've definitely talked about or I've written about a lot is like Seattle really struggles um, to match these other ecosystems like, uh, you know, New York, L.A., San Francisco, even Boston, because people work at Amazon, Microsoft, or they work at Facebook's satellite office or Airbnb's satellite office or whatever. And they make a lot of money and they don't really feel the need to start their own thing. But if you have these studios which are like, hey, we'll kind of eliminate the risk and we'll just help you. Sure, we own one third of the company. You own just two thirds, which is obviously like a huge stake to lose right away. But um, I think it's the it's enough to get those people who might be uh, founders to actually become founders. I think the point about uh, Microsoft and Amazon is especially good. I think also this is why this model, this Madrona model, might be a good fit for places like Chicago as well. Markets that are a little bit less risk-oriented, at least in my impression, but have a lot of talent, have a lot of great developers around there. It's pretty cool. But $11 million will only go so far, so presumably they're going to have to re-up that pot of money eventually. So Yeah, I mean, I imagine they're going to keep it pretty lean. I don't. Okay. I wonder... And I, I didn't have a long time to chat with them just because it's been kind of a crazy week. But I do wonder how how um, much they envision this scaling. Okay. Um, I do think I think it's good. Like, I, I don't want to criticize it. I think it's a great idea. Um, I don't think it's something that would work very well here because people, um, they want to own their companies. Like, they yes. want, they're willing to take the risk just because it's so common. And, like, one of the things Mike from Madrona said in our call, he was like, you know, in Seattle, you're not, like, walking down the street. And you don't just run into an angel investor like you do in San Francisco. It's just completely different. And people forget that. So like you said, Chicago, these other markets, Atlanta, like there are tons of places where I could see this model thriving. Nashville, mm-hmm. New Orleans, whatever. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's cool. It's, and it's 11 million. So it's not uh, it's a lot of money, but it's also not a lot of money. So if this doesn't go well for Majona, not a big deal. If it does go mm-hmm. well, it could set a good precedent. Uh, last comment, though, does feel a little bubbly to me a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it certainly does. We, but we are in rich times. I'm just trying to keep an yeah. eye on, on, on how far from... Um, you know, uh, risk averse we're getting. Hey everyone, don't forget this episode is brought to you by Shares Post.
Uh, I want to talk about scooters really quick. Ugh. But I, yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> but not talk about scooter companies in the way we have traditionally. Um, two companies have, have put out scooters recently that have price tags that I don't understand. So um, TechCrunch wrote today about how Boosted Board, who makes the uh, famous skateboard that people you don't like ride, um, have put out a scooter um, that's rugged and will cost about $1,600. And this follows up news from last week that Bird is going to sell its own Bird One scooter for $1,300. Why? Uh, isn't Doesn't that strike you as a relatively high price for a scooter when you could buy a bike for like 200 bucks? I don't get the well, absolutely. But I, how much is an electric bike? Because that's the point here, right? Is that these are electric, so you get around faster. I don't know. I don't feel like I'm faster on an electric scooter than I am on a pedal bike, because I've got big wheels on the bike and I can cruise along. I mean, I'm definitely faster on an. <laughs> we want to have this debate. I'm, def- <laughs> I, I'm definitely faster on an electric scooter than I am on a regular bike. I mean, come on, like hills. Okay, but imagine you don't live in San Francisco. Imagine you live literally anywhere else in the world. I mean, it's sure. Flat. I completely agree that this seems like a this seems like something that is not going to make these companies much money. I mean, like you just said, Bird is now selling their um, scooters direct to consumer, but I think also that was partly because they want to get their scooters on the streets of these places that aren't allowing them like San Francisco. Now, uh, there could be tons of Bird scooters because people could just own them and I guess take the but there are just so many questions I have about how that would go. Like, where do you put it when you're not yeah. using it? Yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe you bring it into your office and everyone goes, cool story, bro. And then people think it's a um, shareable scooter, though, and right. then people steal it. And right. Well, this is like the problem of owning like a, like, a bra- like a black Prius in any major city because everyone's going to think you're driving for Uber or Lyft. Anyways, yep. the, 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 price, the prices struck me as high, uh, and we'll see how they do. But I have been proven wrong a number of times on micromobility points, so I could be being Dr. Doom yet again. Uh, but it's interesting, and you know what? Bird will generate positive gross margin. On right, those I was going to say, what do you think the margins like on like how much do you think they're paying for these um, scooters that they're presumably getting it from China? I I, I don't know, but I, I would think a thirteen hundred bucks for Bird selling the Bird One pretty good because if it's not a great margin, then they're spending too much on scooters that won't make money back in the market. Because these bird ones are also the ones they're now using that claim to have better unit economics that are driving their business away from the massive losses they sustained in 2018. So you could get, um, you could almost get one Peloton for the price of two birds. That's the most uh, San Francisco thing I've ever heard in my entire life. I actually, you maybe I I don't, I don't know the price of a Peloton. I think it's like three grand. About three, yeah. Yeah, so just saying. I'm not allowed to talk about Peloton on the show because last time I did, I got made fun of. Uh, so we are going to schedule. We're going to move on to um, something that I'm kind of excited about to talk about because it's a round that I didn't understand to begin with, and Kate has since taught me as to why it makes a lot of sense. So, Kate, why has Away raised 100 million dollars? So, Away is the um, very Instagrammable luggage brand that you've probably seen, um, you know, either on Instagram. Or uh, at the airport, or you know, maybe you know someone that has one. I do. Uh, full disclosure: I have one, and I like it. Um, so Away raised a hundred million dollars this week, and like Alex's reaction, um, I noticed a lot of people in the TechCrunch office similar similarly being like, "Oh wow!" Um, shows you, you know, like how far you can get just like having cute Instagram pictures. But like, uh, I think there's a reason why um, they've been so successful. Uh, you know, they've. Yes, they have excellent branding, and I'll talk about that, but um, I think it's a good product, and uh, they've kind of just figured out how to tap into a market that was you know, not populated with startups. It's mostly populated with these incubants who have really crappy, crappy products. Like, do you like your suitcase that you use currently? 
Uh, I don't use a suitcase. I use a duffel and a backpack because I fly a lot. And, I and how's that? It's crappy, but fine. <laughs> well, I mean, you get I the idea. I like, economy, Kate. Nothing's good. Right. But they're, they're, you understand there's an opportunity to probably improve your life if you were to invest in something maybe a little bit nicer. No. His face. Yeah. He's like, uh, no, absolutely not. Uh, I, look, if I, if I bought a nice suitcase, I have to take care of it. If I carry around the stuff that I currently carry around, if I spill a soda on it, I don't care. I just buy a new little duffel. Um, so this does not hit me in the in the need category, even though I fly a lot. But I do respect the fact that people do want better luggage. Yeah. It is a huge pain point for a lot of people who travel. And I presume the margins could be quite strong. So to your point about me being wrong initially, once I thought about it a little bit more, I can see it. Okay. Well, I have a lot of things I want to say. So I'm. let me just... Let's just go back and let me review just some more key details. Yeah, please. So they raised $100 million Series D. Um, this round was led by Wellington Management, so not by a traditional venture capital firm, though um, Away is backed by big-name VCs like Forerunner Ventures, which is responsible for investments in pretty much all the big direct-to-consumer companies. Um, so this round valued Away at $1.4 billion, and that's, that's obviously a quite large. Um, but what's particularly surprising about that valuation is that Away was valued at just $400 million the last time they raised money, which was like a Series C of $50 million, I think maybe about a, one or two years ago. I'm not sure exactly oh when that was. But we're seeing a major, major, major uptick in its valuation. And the reason why is because at its Series C, Away was profitable already. Um, like I was telling Alex, they didn't say anything um, about profitability this time. So I don't know where that stands, but I do know they have $150 million in revenue. Um, they are yearly revenue. Yes. Okay. Um, they are growing top line at a hundred percent. They have an NPS score in the eighties um, and they have a bunch of, you know, new investors in this round that I think kind of shows that they're going well. And also they want to use this capital to kind of create a generic travel brand. So they want to um, be more than just these Instagram friendly, you know, cute, luggage suitcases carry-ons whatever they want to be like kind of provide just anything and everything you might need when you're going on a trip of any kind okay so a couple of points about this the revenue amount makes the new valuation reasonable because i think if you're at you know roughly 10x revenue multiple going at 100 percent in one year it's five and all of a sudden the investors look brilliant really good that nps score is nuts well done um, I'm curious, though, how the brand will spread out, because I think you're right. These uh, suitcases have been very media savvy. They've driven a lot of great mindshare. I walked in and I actually saw your suitcase and I knew what it was, even though I've never bought one. Um, I'm surprised that I knew what it was, frankly. Like, that's a, that's a surprise yeah. to me. And, you know, with this amount of money, they can do a lot. But will the brand stretch to cover I don't know, small tote bags or whatever the hell else you need to travel. Yeah. So I'm pretty confident that this will work well. And the reason I think that is one, they, they've just mastered, they've mastered branding and they just know their market and they know who they're selling to. So like, let me clarify, these are luxury items. Like, of course, these suitcases are a couple hundred dollars um, just for the the cheapest. Um, So you're paying, you know, $250 for a suitcase. Right. But I mean, that's more than a lot of people are going to pay. So these are, these are upscale items, but I think, um, so the founders of Away came from Warby Parker. One of them was head of supply chain and one of them was head of social media. So they have an interesting, I think, shared skill set between them. That's really allowed them to, uh, figure out how to grow quite fast and um, kind of to to expand their market a bit. So I do think it will work. Um, I think, and I think it's going to be fast. I, I also think they were smart early on in that they kind of knew if they could get these bags popular among celebrities and trendsetters mm. that they would really figure out how, how to, like Meghan Merkel has seen, been seen using it. Like all these people. Meghan have, Merkel is the new royal person. 
I mean, she's not that new now. But she's the, the new. Yes. She yes, married into the royal family. I think our listeners probably know who Meghan Markle is. They may not because maybe they're like me and they try to avoid the British Kardashians, a.k.a. the royal family. Let's not get into a debate about this because I have thoughts. But anyways, Please. one thing one thing I do want to say is that it's female founders. This is another female founded unicorn that's follows Glossier, Rent the Runway and a bunch of others. Um, the real real mm-hmm. already this year. So that's really exciting and, and I think completely unprecedented as well. That's amazing. Actually, I didn't realize those were all new unicorns in, is that in yeah. 2019. Yeah. All led by women. Those are all female founded companies. All right, I'm going to race you after the show to see who can block. And actually, faster. you know, better yet, um, those are f- solely females founded companies. Like those companies have only women that have founded them, yeah, yeah, yeah. which is like crazy. So anyway, that's awesome and super exciting. And um, I, I am, I'm excited for this company and I'm curious to see how they figure out how to expand. Oh, oh another note is they've sold 1 million bags, which is a lot of bags. That is a lot. Um, I, yeah. I have one <laughs> kind of final question about this before mm-hmm. we move on to uh, another huge round, but how long does a suitcase last? Like, if, if not using it till it literally falls apart in your hands, but until it no longer has the luxury quality that you want to do when you bought it. So like three years, five years. You know, I'm not sure, but I, I think uh, um, I think these bags have a lifetime guarantee. So I think that they are meant to last. Hmm. And okay. I, I mean, I've only had mine um, maybe like nine months. I've traveled a lot in that time and it's it's held up just fine. But, you know, we'll see. Because I was trying to figure out how fast they'll have repeat buyers. And the answer, given what you just said, doesn't seem like it'll be particularly soon. So maybe this extension to new products lets them kind of hit the same consumer multiple times and drive up their um, average revenue per suitcase owner. Yeah, I think that they that's why they have to expand. And, you know, there's one there was a really good how I built this episode, um, which I'm sure you did not listen to because you don't listen to podcasts. Correct. But there was recently one on away and they interviewed Jen Rubio, which is the co-founder, chief brand officer. And so when they got the idea to do this before they had a single suitcase actually like delivered to them, they were selling coffee table books for two hundred and fifty dollars. And if you bought one, you were guaranteed one of the suitcases when it came out. Isn't that crazy? And they sold out of these. They completely sold out. What was in the book? Uh, It was just like they were going after people who read Vogue magazine. I think it was like lifestyle travel. I honestly, I I obviously, I did not, I don't have one. But isn't that wild just to see the kind of commitment to the brand so early? That's amazing. Mm -hmm. Wow. Right. Yeah. And what we wanted to note as well is that um, when the story came out, uh, the CEO of Slack, Stuart Butterfield, um, tweeted that he wanted to marry or he asked Jen Rubio to marry him over Twitter following that announcement. Yeah. And so I saw this and I went, Mm-mm, not looking at that. And I tried to walk <laughs> away, but here I am sucked back in. So Kate, was that a real proposal or not? Apparently it was not. Apparently it was a joke. Uh, I thought it was serious. So I'm a little surprised. <laughs> don't I, joke about that. I think either. Well, for one, don't joke about that. Two, don't try to st- don't steal someone's thunder by like making this viral joke. Yeah, a good point. He just totally yeah. stomped on her press cycle. He did. Oh my gosh, Stewart. Yeah. And Stuart I think man. he thought. I'm sure she thought it was funny. He thought it was funny, but I was just like, damn, Stewart, you need to like know when to take a seat. Like, yeah, like right then, just sit. Yeah. Like you're already really rich. <laughs> don't tell jokes. Stay, stay in your lane. Okay. Well, anyways, I think we talked enough about that. Okay. Shall we move on? Yes, we shall. So, um. There's been a, a recent IPO that we've tracked called Beyond Meats, but in the same space, roughly, there's been another huge round. And uh, Kate, what are the nuts and bolts of this Impossible Foods uh, infusion of capital? Yeah, so Impossible Foods has raised a $300 million round, um, Yeah, which brings its total equity raise to $750 million, and it gives it a new valuation of $2 billion. Um, so not only does this follow the uh, Beyond Meat IPO, um, but it also follows a really high-profile deal with Burger King that will have um, Burger King incorporating Impossible's meat to create the first 
meat alternative Whopper, non-meat Whopper. Yeah. So, uh, are you a Burger King fan, Kate? I, no. Okay. All right. All right. All right. I'm, just asking <laughs> I'm qu- sorry. Are you? No. Okay. So I, I was hoping one of us was, oh. so that we could say like, would we eat that? Um. Well, I would try it. Okay. Yeah, I would definitely try it. All right. I, I mean, I like. I really like the um, Impossible Burgers, the Beyond Meat. I don't know which one I've had because I don't know really if there's much of a difference. Yeah, I'm yeah. in the same boat there. But I, I, you know, presumably, if this distribution deal with Burger King has major lift and gets you know a wide rollout, it could be a material amount of revenue for Impossible Foods, and you know, more power to them. Right. And so now they're sold in more than seven thousand restaurants in the U.S. and oh, Europe. So, oh my gosh, seven thousand. Yeah. And you know what's funny? I was reading something about this and. It was like, yeah, now 32% of Americans consider themselves flexitarians. What? Yeah. So that's apparently now a thing. And I'm, my, my assumption is that that's somebody who swaps in between not eating meat and eating meat. But like, d- what? Isn't that already what people are? Do. Yeah. yeah. The, the context to this round that we were talking about is that this follows an explosive IPO by Beyond Meats. Like, it's just, it's been enormous. And I did a little bit of math back uh, right after their IPO happened, and they were worth about four billion. And I figured out they had a 227x multiple on their 2018 gross profit. That's not their income; it's their gross profit. They're now worth 5.5 billion. So the market is looking at companies in this space and going, "This is the future." And no, this feels like a faster acceleration to the future than we saw with electric cars, which had a much longer ramp time towards right. becoming. I think we all can kind of nod our heads. Eventually, the thing we're all going to drive, uh, this, uh, I don't know, I want to find a polite way of saying fake meat. That's not the right Meat substitute. Meat, meat alternative. Meat alternative. That just sounds like, a, I don't know, like Diet Coke. Uh, it's like um, a replacement for, but also as good as. All okay. protein. Yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. that. And the beard has spoken, so therefore yeah. it shall be. <laughs> um, but to see the, the valuations get to where they are, fantastic. And to see $300 million go into this other company, Impossible Foods, also very exciting. I'm just kind of amped for it. Well, t- I'm sorry if you don't know this off the top of your head, but um, do you re- recall what Beyond Meat's most recent private valuation was? No, but I will look it up. Okay, I'm just I'm curious because you know we're seeing Impossible Foods now at a two billion valuation, and I just I kind of wonder which um, will ultimately sort of uh, conquer the market. Though with that said, there's plenty of room for competition in a space like this because this is kind of disrupting, you know, <laughs> disrupting us, disrupting the way that we eat, which is a very big deal. Well, now that I'm apparently I'm a flexitarian and no one told me. Um, by the way, that is just the most useless. Term. I wonder. Yeah, to our listeners, let us know if you've ever heard of that because I. I had never saw that in my life until um, yesterday. What is our email address? Equitypod at techcrunch.com? Yes. Okay, yeah. So if you if you are a flexitarian, uh, <laughs> write into I have weird taste buds and uh, we'll uh, we'll get back to you. Uh, I can't find the last valuation number actually, so we're going to have to move on from that. But critically, this is fun. Try out these burgers. If you live near Burger King uh, and you can eat one of these and you send in a picture of it, we will send you an I internet think, high five. I think most Americans uh, do live near Burger King. <laughs> Okay, well, I live in San Francisco, so I don't know if I do. <laughs> do we? There's definitely, yeah. Chris is nodding. There is definitely a Burger King in right. San Francisco. So I will go and take a picture of it and put it on the show. Uh, moving on to uh, our last key topic of the day, the CrowdStrike S1 dropped yesterday. CrowdStrike is an online cybersecurity firm. Uh, this was, to me, an unexpected uh, offering. I did not know it was coming out. I was not prepared. But uh, Kate and I both jumped on it right away. And we're seeing a lot of ARR growth, some sticky losses. Kate, what was your first impression looking at the numbers? Well, I just want to pat myself on the back and say that I wrote a story at the 
end of last year predicting IPOs, and I mentioned CrowdStrike in it. So I wasn't surprised. Woo! Yep. Um, which is great for me because I'm never right. <laughs> but it's so, actually the first correct prediction we've ever had on the show. Yeah. And one of the other companies that I had mentioned on there was Zoom. So that's great. Uh, they are obviously done. And Peloton is on that list. And I'm very, I'm waiting patiently for that S1, but we'll see. Um, anyways, uh, I'll let you talk more about the um, financials if you'd like. But um, I, I uh, will just say that I um, was interested to see that Excel owns 20% of CrowdStrike mm-hmm. and Excel also owns um, about a quarter of Slack. So it's a big year for Excel. Um, additionally, Warburg Pincus uh, owns 30% of CrowdStrike and Capital G, this is the private equity arm of Alphabet, yes. owns 11.2%. So another uh, pretty spectacular year for Alphabet because they had huge stakes in Uber and Lyft as well. Yeah, too bad their other bets division can't keep up with their Capital G division. Um, let's talk about revenue. And we have to use their very annoying fiscal calendar. So I'm going to have to say a lot of extra words here. So I apologize to the listeners. In the year ending January 31, 2017, so the year ending January of 17, they had revenue of just under $53 million. That went up to 118.8 the next year. And in the year ending January 31, 2019, that shot all the way up to just under $250 million. So we are seeing insane revenue growth of this company, which came at a very high cost. The company's operating expenses alone were $300 million in its last fiscal year, and it torched $140.1 million on a net gap basis. So you can see kind of a lot of things you'd expect here. High growth, high spend, high burn. However, there's some stuff that was buried in the S1 that I that I found that I'm pretty excited by. Uh, they closed their last fiscal year, so in January of this year, calendar, with ARR of just over $312 million. And that was up 121% from a preceding year uh, result of $141 million in ARR. To go when you're in the nine-figure ARR category, to go more than 100% in one year is nuts. And they have done it with essentially flat net losses. So their margins have improved uh, as this has gone on. And one last data point for the SaaS fiends out there, their dollar-based net retention rate in their last fiscal year, 147%, which is insanely good. So points to them. Like It's, it's super impressive. Um, they spend too much money. Uh, they're, but that's you know kind of standard. Right. I mean, I noticed that they're... they're um operating expenses are like double their gross profit. But um, we we never talk about, um, we like almost never talk about cybersecurity. I don't think we ever have. Just saying, like we, we just we just don't. So I, are you not interested in that space? No, it's I don't understand it. Right, yeah. yeah so I e- mean, everyone in technology journalism does not understand cybersecurity. Well, Zach Whitaker except does. for Zach Whitaker, yeah. who is, yes, who's TechCrunch's cybersecurity reporter and the best in the business. But um, yeah, I agree. I don't spend a lot of time um, looking at cybersecurity space um, and we certainly don't talk about it. But I'm curious, are you still, because this is a SaaS business, which I know you like, are you excited for this IPO? Very, very excited for this IPO. There's a lot, there's a lot of stuff here that could look scary at first blush, but if you know more about SaaS businesses, it could look quite exciting. So to me, the exciting question here is not will it go public? It will. Is how do you value it? And how do you value this very high growth, very high spend model in a post Uber and Lyft IPO climate? Um, there's a much simpler path to profitability for this company, but I, I do think it'll give investors pause after watching Uber and uh, and Lyft struggle. Right. Well, moral of the story is just because Uber performed disastrously and Lyft is not doing so well, uh, companies are still going to go public and unicorns are still going to go public. And it looks like the unicorn parade of IPOs is not slowing down anytime soon. That was the best segue ever on this show. <laughs> Next topic, Kate, go. All right. Last topic. Slack, it has set its date for its direct listing. It's June 20th. So we'll be here. Well, actually, I'll be here. Alex will not be here. 
um, in June 20th, but um, we'll be watching closely. Do you want to say why? But uh, I get married on June 22nd, knock on wood. Yay. So on June 20th, if I'm on Slack or on the podcast, I believe I'll get a shot. I told him don't pay attention. He said he's going to watch Slack's stock movement regardless. Yeah, so. I'll tweet about it, but I can't write. I can't do any real quote, quote, work or I'll be in trouble. So Well, somebody will be here with me talking about it on the Equity, and you guys can also look at Alex's tweets for more. Anyways, goodbye for me from 410 Townsend. Uh, we may be here for one last episode uh, next week, but this is the end of an era. And so to this building, which has given me so much, goodbye. Bye. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening. And a big thank you to our producer, Christopher Gates, our executive producer, Henry Pickovet, And we will see you all right here next week. <laughs>